If you have your Bibles, whilst you get ready, it's Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking particularly at verse 6, but I'll be reading from verse 1. Don't get nervous with me taking off the watch. <laughs> it's so that I can see it more clearly. Uh, this morning, I have to be honest with you. Um, I've been away on almost two weeks holiday. And um, coming towards this Sunday and working towards it, I have felt in two minds about how to tackle this morning's passage. The first part is I feel we've reached a point in the Sermon on the Mount that requires us to look back and go, Wow, this is how we have journeyed up to this summit, this mountain. And it's necessary for us to understand the massive implications of what this verse we're going to be looking at today really um, means for us. But at the same time, I don't want to dilute this fourth beatitude. Um, it is perhaps the most important because it's almost as if all that follows in this passage of Scripture comes after summiting this verse. And so I'm trusting the Lord this morning that he is going to lead us and that um, he's going to help me unpack this thing in a way that's life-changing and uh, encouraging and full of comfort but also full of challenge. Um, I want to remind you this morning that uh, we are in a very, very special season as a church. Why are we doing the Sermon on the Mount? That's what I felt first and foremost I had to talk about this morning. Well, we feel that God is calling us as a church to three loves. The first is God is calling us to love up. In other words, He wants to make the most important thing in your life and mine, the most important thing in our church, a love for Jesus. And the Sermon on the Mount is the reason or the way that we see what a life looks like that loves Jesus first. If you want to know what a life looks like that's pursuing a first love in Christ, then it is the Sermon on the Mount. And remember, church, I cannot emphasize it enough. We are called disciples first before Christians. We are called to follow Jesus. That is our identity. The most important person in your life, it's not your husband. It's not your boss. It's not even your children. The most important person in your life, it is Jesus. And following him is what makes a Christian. We were called Christians later. We were called disciples first. And this Sermon on the Mount is preached to those who want to follow Jesus. He went up on a mountainside. And it was those who wanted to be close to him that went to go and hear him. And if your desire is not to be close to Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is not going to make sense. It's going to sound like a fish out of water. You're going to feel like a fish out of water. But for the person, and that's anybody here, it doesn't matter where you are in your life. It doesn't matter if you've committed the worst sin yesterday. 
doesn't matter if you're feeling depressed and weak this morning. It doesn't matter. But if you in your heart can say this morning, Lord Jesus, I want more of you in my life, you qualify. You qualify. We're going to look at this morning about how we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It means those that aren't perfect but want to please God. They're the ones that qualify to be satisfied. So nobody needs to feel exempt this morning. Nobody needs to sit on the outskirts saying, I wish I was better in order to qualify. It, as the, the qualification is, if you want Jesus, this is for you. And I want to remind you that the Sermon on the Mount is to prepare us for what really matters. The clothes in your cupboard don't really matter. The money in your bank account doesn't really matter. You're going to take none of that with you. The reputation that we prize. I, I like to think people hopefully think relatively well of me. But in actual fact, that doesn't matter. I don't take that into the next life. The Sermon on the Mount is to prepare us for what's going to last forever. It's called the kingdom of heaven. And this pulpit does you no service if it, if it doesn't call you to think spiritually about your life. What you do now matters for eternity. How you choose to live and love Jesus now matters for eternity because the king is coming back and everything that is done in loving obedience for Jesus is going to stand forever. Everything that is not done out of obedience to him, it's going to pass away. And we will see later on in Sermon on the Mount, it will lead to loss, not loss of salvation, but loss of what God wants to give you. He wants to reward faithfulness. And so our motivation is this sermon that prepares us for what really matters. And it is this loving Christ first. That is the motivation of everything. And out of the overflow of this loving of Christ, he calls us to love in. I have to ask myself this question. Do I really love Jesus if I don't really love his body? This is his church. This is the place where we experience his presence. This is where the hand and the foot ministers. And we have to ask ourselves the question, is how interested are we in loving in? Because a person who follows Jesus, it is a priority because we find Christ there. And this is preached to disciples as a community church. It's plural. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it's his disciples who came to him. And when he talks later on in this sermon, I'm going to remind us again and again, it is to the community of disciples, those who are on track with Jesus. You know you are moving forward in Christ if you are really worried about how your brothers and sisters are doing. When you start to move away from an obsession with self, as we're going to look this morning, you're starting to enter into the big league. When what is happening in this church is on your heart and in your prayers, when you are in touch with your brothers and sisters, you are starting to become like Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus is in touch with his body. He is grafted in. He's the head. He knows when every finger is aching. He knows when every wound is on a shin or a calf. He is so in touch with you. And if we become like Jesus, the kind of church we are going to become is in touch with each other because that's how Christ is. It's loving in. And the third is, this is when we know we have arrived, if I can use an inverted commas, is when we start loving out. My friends, 
I am telling you now, in my life and yours, we do not love out naturally. People who are on the outside are not naturally on our radar. We don't naturally love the lost. We don't naturally love the person who's coming here for the first time or maybe for a few weeks and nobody's spoken to them. We don't genuinely love the outside until the Spirit is working in our lives. Do you know why? It is because there is nothing in it for you to love the outsider. There's something in it for you to love here because then you're in, you're accepted. If people like you, man, then you feel a part of what's happening here. But for the outsider, there is no self-motivation to love them because they can give nothing back to you. They don't enhance your status. They don't make you feel better about yourself. They don't improve the way people see you here. When you start to love the outsider, you're starting to love like Jesus. We're going to look at that in just a moment. And when we start to see that in our church, can I tell you now, we are starting to see the similar amount having its full effect in our lives. And can I just say this morning, nothing else matters here in this church except whether or not we are pleasing Jesus. That's all. How do we know if we are pleasing Jesus? How do you know if you are pleasing Jesus in your life is if that love is happening in three dimensions. You are loving him. You are loving up. You are loving in. You are loving the body of Christ. You are serving. You are ministering. You are concerned. You are encouraging. You are comforting. You are spurring on. Oh, but you are loving out. That's the heart of the Sermon on the Mount is when you start to love others more than yourselves. We start to see the kingdom happening here. And what I'm preaching on this morning is what we have to be concerned about. Let me tell you, it will set us on fire. It will make our church the greatest beacon of hope, of warmth, of comfort, of light, a lampstand in the city that needs Jesus. And so I want to remind you, these Beatitudes that we're looking at this morning, they are a description. Very important. They are not application points. They are the characteristics of a person who's pursuing their first love. And can I say they are for every Christian. As I'm going to read these this morning, there's not a single one of us who are exempt. This is for every disciple of Jesus. And they are the fruit of our daily passion and pursuit to love and live for Jesus. They are supernatural. They can only come by the work of the Spirit. And this is why, when we are going to read in a moment, Jesus calls the person blessed when they see these things happening in their lives. Because if you start to see these things operating in you, you're moving forward in God. He's saying, congratulations. Happy are you. Lucky are you. God is moving you forward in the things of Christ. You're starting to achieve the things that you are longing for. The passionate pursuit of Christ is starting to work out in you. Congratulations. You are becoming like Jesus. Can I say to you this morning, these Beatitudes operated fully in Christ. 100%. They are what characterized Jesus. So let's read. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they shall inherit the earth. And here's the one we're going to get to this morning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. These Beatitudes have a very specific pattern. They have a logical flow. And we've been saying from week to week, they are like a ladder. Unless one is operating in your life, you can't move to the next. And it's also like a building. Unless you remain, you never graduate from a beatitude. One enables the other, but it still operates in your life. And I want to prove it to you this morning. I want to help us see how we get to the summit of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Well, the first is this. The very first thing that has to happen in your life and mine is we have to become poor in spirit. And this is what happens when God shows you what you are really like. This is what we are really like before him. It doesn't matter what the world thinks about you and me. It's what God thinks about you and me. And when he sees us, he sees us as desperately poor. We have nothing to recommend ourselves to him. We have no bargaining power. Is that you this morning? When you come before God, he is not interested in the worldly wealth you have, the status, the looks, the good works. They mean nothing. We have got nothing to bargain with God. We are utterly dependent upon him for everything. Unless he gives us this kingdom, unless he gives us Christ, we are empty-handed. And so we are utterly dependent upon him for salvation and everything needed for life and godliness. We never stop being dependent upon Jesus. And that's what Ratif was saying. That was what Karen was saying. Is every day you have to feed on him. That's a person who understands their true state and need of Jesus. They are poor in spirit. They understand that unless they eat of Christ today, they're not going to be able to make it. The second is this, is blessed are those who mourn. And this happens when God shows you what you are really like. And you say, that's me. It is how you know you are poor in spirit. Is you grieve because you see what you are really like. Don't misunderstand me. It is wonderful. <laughs> it's painful, but it is wonderful. I'll tell you why in a moment. But what happens is you don't only grieve about yourself, but because you start thinking spiritually, you start to see the world spiritually, and you start to see that this world is passing away. It's dying. There's no hope in it for you. This is not the place where you make your home because the kingdom of God is going to come and it's going to pass away this world. It's going to wipe it out. And ultimately, mourning in spirit means you have to attend your own funeral. It means that you die to yourself. You grieve the death of your old self and sinful nature. You start to see it is of no use to you. You start to see that you cannot prop it up. You don't even want to. You don't want to defend it. You don't want to try and preserve it. It's death to you. That self that you put so much hope in, that self that you put so much store in, so much pride, you emptied of it. You mourn it. You die towards self. And that enters into the most wonderful of all. I'm so sorry I missed last week, but it was such a blessing studying me. Blessed are the meek. Let me tell you, it is the rarest anointing. It is the rarest working of the Spirit at this time. It is when you are so concerned for the glory of God more than your own. 
Do you know why you become concerned about God's glory? It's because you can see what you really like. That there's nothing impressive about you. You don't think so much of yourself. In fact, you have died to yourself. That's the effect of mourning. And so what is there to defend? If someone comes to you and brings criticism and correction, what is there to defend? You're totally approachable. You're totally able to have anybody say anything to you because the chances are they're most likely right. (laughs) Meekness is the absence of aggressiveness and defensiveness. It is the absence of self. You're not preoccupied with yourself. You're dying to yourself. And because when somebody comes to you and corrects you, you don't mind because you want to become like Jesus. You want to glorify his name. And let me tell you, friends, this morning, if you are meek, you have set yourself up for this amazing fourth beatitude. Because your desire becomes to please God. Is that your desire this morning? You want to please and become like Jesus because that's all that matters to you. Trying to prop up yourself, trying to be somebody in this world, it doesn't matter. You've died to that. Let me tell you, if you are meek, you are powerful in the hands of God. Because you're only preoccupied with one thing. is how can I please Jesus? Not myself. How can I preserve the name of Jesus? Not myself. And this leads to an appetite. This leads to an appetite of this fourth beatitude of blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. You are so longing to please and live for Jesus because you've so died to yourself. You with me? You've mourned it. It's dead. Righteousness is wanting to please God in every area of your life. And I want to start this morning by unpacking what a godly appetite is. You know, an appetite is a good sign of health. Many of you here go, when I ask how you're doing, quite a number actually. Well, I'm fit, fat, and flourishing, not so? When you're eating, man, you're healthy. It is a sign of spiritual health. Let me tell you, I long, I long to see this in me. Why? Because then I know I am blessed because there is health in me. If you have a good appetite, there's not much wrong with you, not so? Some of us have more appetite than others. When you lose your appetite, it happens to me. I don't want to eat when I'm highly stressed or anxious. Any of you know that feeling? Some of you do the opposite, okay? Granted. When there's disease, you waste away, not so. When there's a disorder in you, like anorexia, it's so destructive. Some of you know what it's like to battle that. Is when you lose appetite, there's something wrong. And I want to say this morning, this is the sign of spiritual health, is how hangry, what Karen said is spot on. I said to her, it is spot on. If you are hungry for Jesus, there is not much wrong with you. You're in a good space. But may I say gently to you this morning, if you are not, it is an alarm bell. It is an alarm bell. And I want to unpack it because when we start to lose this appetite, the previous three Beatitudes are no longer operating in our life. This is so important. It's what is called backsliding. I've experienced it. Many of you have. 
Backsliding means this. There is no status of neutral in the kingdom. You cannot stand still with Jesus. You are either moving forward or you are sliding back. That's how it works. And some of you who've been doing this for some time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. How does it happen? The first is what Karen shared. It's when you stop or stop sensing a need for dependency on God. You start getting dull. That poverty of spirit doesn't happen in you. You start to move away from a desire to stay close to Jesus. You get a bit sloppy. That's how it works. Not that you're trying to work your way to keep yourself in the kingdom, but you are staying close to where you know you are dependent or who you are dependent on. It's God. Some of us have forgotten what it's like to live off God. You go to work every day. You don't need God. The money comes in, you don't need God. And the way God starts to make us poor in spirit, as has been in my life and yours, is he starts to take things away if we will not listen to his word. It's so much, so gracious, so good for us. We need him. And many of us have been brought back that way. God has had to step in and say, you need me more than anything else in your life. But the second thing is, once we start not operating with the poverty of spirit, which just means a dependency on God, is you start to get complacent about sin. You no longer need to be close to Him, so you embrace what separates you from Him. It's called sin. There's no longer any mourning. You don't take seriously how sin affects your relationship with Jesus. And what happens then is a preoccupation with self. Can I tell you what the essence of sin is this morning? Do you want to know what sin in its fullness looks like? It's being obsessed with yourself. Everything has to meet my needs. Everything has to come my way. Sin is the temptation to put self first. And that is the opposite of meekness. What happens with a backsliding Christian is they become defensive. Why? Because... They don't want to let go of self because they forget how much they need Jesus. I'm going to talk a little bit about that later. There's plenty of hope if that's you this morning. But it's either if there is a loss of appetite, the lack of operating of these beatitudes, or it's you've never ever had them operate in your life. I don't like doing this often, but it's important, is after a significant time, it's good to ask the question, what is the outcome of my faith looking like? You could have been attending church for a couple of years, be part of a small group, maybe try to learn your Bible or even pray. It's good to ask yourself the question after a long period of time, what is the fruit of my life? If there has never been a desire to change in your life, then you are not yet a Christian. And I say that to be helpful because you have never seen yourself in the first beatitude. You have never seen how much you desperately, desperately need Jesus because of sin. And because the second one hasn't operated, there isn't really any need to change because there's no mourning over sin. You don't really think sin is that serious. But a person who has the Beatitudes operating in their life, they realize they've got to get rid of this thing because God hates it. That's the point of salvation, not so? You know, my little girl, she's two years old, but she can recite what my mom has taught her. I say, 
why did Jesus die on the cross? And she'll say, for our sins. A two-year-old understands. Here, I don't know here yet. I'm hoping it goes down. But she understands that salvation is not to excuse sin, but to rescue us from it in all of its fullness. Now, that won't matter to you one bit unless you've seen it. It hasn't been salvation. Don't measure your salvation by your attendance of church. It's a good place to be. Don't measure your salvation by how much you even read your Bible and pray. It is how much you need Jesus. Is he precious to you? And do you want to be like him? That's the test after a period of time. And can I say this morning, the test is not to be perfect. You don't need to hunger and thirst for righteousness if you are, not so. So this morning, the test is whether, it's not whether I'm perfect or not, it's whether I want to become like Jesus. If this appetite is in you, there is not much wrong with you. You with me? So, can I say this morning to the person who can identify with being backslidden, the differences between the person who is not yet saved and the person who's far away from God, backslidden, but they know God, is this. Is when you hear the scripture, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For the backslider, in their heart, they know that to be true. They've experienced it. The prodigal son, though he was miles away, he was still a son and he was still a father. And he could remember what it was like to be right with the father in his house, living right there with him. When I tell you that you are to make Christ the passion and pursuit of your life, if you are backsliding in your heart, you know that to be right. In actual fact, a backslider is a person who's on the run from God. Because they know him to be real. And this morning, I want to say to you, just come back. Don't run anymore. I'll get to that. But for the unsaved person, you know what your response is when you hear that scripture? It is this. Well, that's a bit unreasonable. That's a bit hectic. That's a bit intense. It doesn't make sense to you. Because the Holy Spirit has not yet operated in your life. And I want to say to you this morning, you have to first come to see your need for Jesus before anything else. So what is the nature of this hunger and thirst? Well, being hungry and thirsty keeps you alive, not so. If you didn't hunger and thirst, John knows medically, you're in trouble. How would you remember to eat or drink? How would you keep your body alive? Why is this beatitude so important? It keeps you spiritually alive. Hungering and thirsting is the most elemental need of the body. It's not just to know that you're alive. It keeps you alive. You're not a corpse if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness because nobody does this naturally, only by the Holy Spirit. And hunger and thirst, it leads you to distraction. How many of you have really been hungry, starving in your life? When I went to school, my dad was the headmaster, which means he always left last. 
And we eat lunchtime at break was 11 o'clock in the morning. Not so? I don't know if it's still like that. And I had to make my own lunch. And so being a boy, I would do the least possible amount of work at the last minute in the morning. So it was generally four slices of bread and a little juice that I would have to last the whole day. For a growing boy, by the time it was 3 o'clock, I thought my insides were going to eat my outsides. All I wanted was to eat. And my dad had the key for the tuck shop. All I thought about was, I've got to get those knickknacks. And my father always said no. And for my whole life, I have orientated my life around food. Because it was such a need for me, I think about my day. Will I be at the office so I can walk up to the spa to get lunch? Good, then I won't pack. Will I go to my mom's? I raid her fridge almost every day. But I think about it. And this is what the person is like who is hungry and thirsting for righteousness. It is this awareness that God's demand on your life is there all the time. You want to please Him. It's distracting. And when there is this sense of needing to satisfy this need for hunger, you want to go to the areas that meet that need. Can I tell you, the greatest saints, those men of faith in Hebrews 11 and goes into Hebrews 12, there were things that drove them to God because they were so hungry. It's what Karen shared this morning. It was hungering for God's word because they found meat, food for this appetite. It was hungering to pray because they could experience the presence of God. They wanted to talk to Jesus daily. And let me tell you, these men and women were passionate about the church. Why? So it could make them feel secure about their salvation? No. So they could live it out because these people, these brothers and sisters, they were flesh of their flesh and bone of their bone. And when they got together, they experienced Jesus. This is the kind of appetite that a church that longs for righteousness reveals. A church that loves to pray. A church that loves the word. A church that loves each other. And it is a daily experience. Karen Karen said it was so important. She said that revelation of how weak she was without eating, it showed her that daily she needs food. Can I say to you this morning, you hunger and thirst every day. We need to attend to the need every day. If that is you this morning, can I say, if that is your level of desire for Jesus, you are blessed. You are blessed. Congratulations. It is the work of the Spirit, and I long for more of it in my life. Long for it. And I want to say quickly, I felt there was a question that could arise in this verse. Is there can be confusion about, why must I seek to be righteous? Why must I hunger and thirst for it if I already am in Jesus? Have you thought about that? If you are righteous in Christ. In other words, all that Jesus is satisfies the Father on your behalf. The righteousness of Jesus is credited to your account. You are totally right with the Father in your position. Then why should you still seek righteousness? What Jesus is talking about here is not the righteousness you receive when you come to faith in Christ. That's called justification. It is the most glorious moment. It happens in the court of heaven. When you say, Jesus Christ, if this is you, and you are not a Christian yet, and you want to be a Christian, this is for you. 
The way you become a Christian is when you see yourself. If I paint a picture, when you think you're going to stand before God, before you're a Christian, you're the one in the dark and you're going to tell him all that you've done of why I should let you into heaven because you're such an amazing person. That's a non-Christian. A person who's a Christian realizes by the Spirit what they are really like. They become absolutely poor and they cry out and their confidence moves from themselves and they cry out to Jesus. They say, Jesus, be my defense. Jesus, what you did on the cross, let it speak for me. The position changes. We're no longer our defense. Christ becomes our defense. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says he becomes our advocate. Amazing. He becomes our legal team. He goes and he stands before the Father and says, this man, this woman has asked for me to stand as their defense. And the Father who is a judge up until that point, he's not your father yet. He, he slams down the gavel and says, Christ has paid for this man or woman. All the righteousness, the way Jesus pleased me perfectly is now his or hers. Not guilty forever. Forever. Have you ever thought about this? Becoming saved is having God as a father, not as a judge. Do you know what happens when you are saved? Saved means you're rescued from your sin. It means that the father has moved from being a judge to that in your life. You receive the position of Jesus. You become a child of God, a son and daughter of the living God. You are righteous in your position, your status. And let me explain it to you like this. My little girl, Sarah, she is my little girl by blood. That is her position. She is my daughter. Nothing's going to change it. And she didn't work for that or earn it. She just came out of Marina's tummy. Plop, and she was mine. That will never change. She's bound to me by blood. You are bound to the Father by Christ's blood. You are righteous. But that doesn't make me blind to her sin. Her behavior, it's sinful. Gosh, these last two weeks in Hogsback, they were wonderful. But my child, I am seeing, is not perfect. She's righteous. She's right with me in her position. She'll always be my daughter. But she's not righteous in her behavior yet. That's how God sees us. You will forever be his precious son and daughter by the blood of Jesus. You are bound to him unconditionally. He will be your defense till the day you die. Jude chapter 2, Jude verse 2 says, Christ preserves you forever. But your behavior has to line up to your position. It's called sanctification. It is becoming ever increasingly like Jesus. You are in Christ. That is your position. Now become like him. 
That is your sanctification. God is calling you not only to be rescued from the punishment of sin. That is eternal separation from God. That is what justification does. You are no longer under condemnation. You will never experience the final punishment of sin. You are not condemned. You are not guilty. You are received by the Father forever. You are in heaven. You are as good as there. You are the citizen of heaven. Ephesians tells us you are saved. But now he wants to rescue you from sin's pollution. Let me tell you, sin damages everything. Don't you know it? I know it. Damages my parenting. I hurt my girl. I hurt my wife. Damages my marriage. It damages my preaching. It damages the way I deal with the staff across the road. It damages the way I deal with friends. Sin is disgusting in all of its forms. Salvation is to rescue us entirely from its effects. It's pollution. And from its power. Let me tell you, when you come to faith in Christ, Christ gives you the Holy Spirit to resist every sin and temptation that can come your way. He wants to rescue you from the punishment of sin. The pollution of sin. The power of sin. He wants to make you righteous. That will not make any sense to you. Unless you have the Holy Spirit saying, that's right. My friend, if you can see that you are blessed, you are blessed, you've experienced the call of the kingdom. A few heads up. This righteousness is unseen. Don't be like the Pharisee. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1 says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. If you want to seek righteousness, don't look over your shoulder. You fix your eyes on Jesus. It's very helpful. The second is it's unpretentious. Seeking this righteousness, it's not a prideful thing. It's not a legalistic thing. In actual fact, you can only seek this righteousness to the degree to which you are absent of pride and self. Your desire is to please Jesus, not to prop up your flesh. It is unappreciated. Don't expect the world to clap for you as you do this. John chapter 15 verse 18 said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. This will not get you the accolades the world wants to give. But it will give you what God wants to give. And the way he gives it, I know this sounds strange, is it's unconscious. We never arrive. In actual fact, the more God gives us a taste of satisfying this desire, the more it triggers a hunger for him. Is that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because as that starts to play out in your life, so you start to go deeper in your desire for Jesus. And that goes deeper and deeper and deeper until you are like the psalmist was, which we, we preached on the first two Sundays of the year. One thing I ask, that I would seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is this passion and desire. The way this achievement works out in your life is as you taste of Christ, so you want more. The depth of the anointing is not your satisfaction in righteousness. It's your depth of desire. It keeps you. It takes you forward in the things of God. It makes you start to think like Jesus did and achieve the things he has for you to do. It becomes the driving motivation and passion of your life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because, my friend, you will be filled. You will be satisfied. Forget about the bank balance. 
Forget about the applause of the world. Forget about fame. Forget about the comfort. We're so comfortable. Let me tell you, let us embrace the discomfort of this call of hunger and thirst so that we might experience the glory of what Christ wants to give us. It will change your life. And I'm praying, I have been praying for you and for myself that we would be awakened as a church to the glory of what God has in store for us. Do you know what it's like to have Christ before you, hungering and driving you forward in your life? It is the most joyful way, the most peaceful way. It is the most uncluttered way to think about your life. It will make you see clearly for your children. It will make you see clearly for your colleagues. It will make you see clearly for the people around you. You will become such a motivated, focused, clear-minded, successful person in the kingdom. And no one will applaud you, but Christ will. This is what matters. This is why this church exists. And if it's you this morning saying, I want it, my friend, you are blessed. Congratulations. If you were like me this last week saying, I don't know if I really want this, cry out to the Lord. He'll test it. I'll share with you one thing that happened to me this week. I was reading this and I was saying, God, please, I don't know if I really see this in my life. Because I couldn't see meekness. I felt so preoccupied with myself. And I prayed and I had such a wonderful time with the Lord. The next day, I woke up to do sermon prep early in the morning when I'm at my best. There was no electricity in Hogsback. For 15 hours, I had to go back to bed. I got up. I had to arrange the family, and it started to rain. And in Hogsback, there's nothing much to do if it rains. My girl was starting to play up. She's cutting a monster molar. And she would not sleep, so I could not do any more sermon prep. I went down to the shop to go buy things for supper, but because of the power outage, the generator wouldn't let the computer use the card machine, and I had 20 bucks in my pocket. So I'll go back. Sarah has a meltdown because she wants to push the trolley, but I tell her you can't push the trolley because we can't buy anything. Try and explain it to a two-year-old who hasn't slept in like, I don't know how many hours. I got back to Hogsback, to our cottage. I go, and then suddenly, pling, the lights come on. So I go back down to the shop, but the electricity has been put on for the shop, only for the house. So I can't buy the supper. I have to walk around in darkness until the electricity comes back on in the shop and I buy the supper. I get him, and as I got to the gate, I was so angry, I was so upset, I felt so sorry for myself, I just wanted to escape, and God asked me the question, how much do you want me? Because you see, the person who hungers for righteousness in all of those situations, they just want to please Jesus, and it was so helpful for me. Because the two days later, it was time to pack up the car. And my little Sarah is learning, to ha- learning how to be a little helper. So what she does is, I have just packed the car. Jane, you know what it is like? It is like high chairs. It's like packing the boot up to its brim. I've just got everything beautifully, and I've put the boot down. Praise the Lord, it's in. And my wife says, I can't find my phone. <laughs> Sarah, being the little helper, has packed the cell phone into an unknown bag. And now I have to unpack all of my work. But I tell you what, I was ready for it. I said, in this, Lord, I'm going to please you. 
There's my wife crying. I go by my phone. The kids start screaming because I'm taking so long. You know how they are? If they're stationary for more than two minutes, they start to cry. And I said, Lord, I want to please you. I passed the test. I was on a high. Sarah moaned the whole way home. Doesn't matter. Why? Because I'm understanding. I have a consciousness in my life to please Jesus. That's when we change. I don't get it right often, but I tell you what, I want to get it right more often. I'm not righteous yet, but I want to be more righteous. And the more I think this way, the more set free I am. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. So this morning, we're going to hand out communion. And again, I know I've preached a long time, so if you need to go, I want you to feel released. Please just do it quietly. But this morning, if you want to come back to the start of how this all works, is this bread and this cup is a reminder from Jesus of what you live off, what secures you in the kingdom, what qualifies you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is Jesus. It's Jesus. And we have to come back to this place because we have no righteousness of our own. We live off His. And by living off His, we start to look more like His. We start to look like Jesus. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He says, take this cup. It is the new covenant in my blood. And eat of this body. This is the cornerstone. This is the qualification. This is where it starts and this is where it stays.